Welcome to Liberated, a Liberal Democrat podcast. I'm Laura Sheeter. And with a new year, a fresh impetus for campaigning. A lot has been said about the collapse in the Liberal Democrat vote among young people. And in some parts of the media and politics, there seems to be a sense that the Labour Party is the anointed party of the young. But is that right? And how can the Lib Dems, apparently so closely aligned to the interests of young people on Brexit, turn that into members, campaigners and votes? I brought Elaine Bagshaw, the Liberal Democrat parliamentary candidate for Poplar and Limehouse in Tower Hamlets, and one of her newest recruits, Tara Hussein, who's a student, to talk about it. First, though, I asked Vince how seriously the generation gap is affecting people's lives. I think it's it's real and it's based on objective realities. This isn't just people's fantasies. The differences in life chances and experience of my generation and uh, people in their teens and 20s is vast. It relates to people's job security. I mean, the whole idea which an earlier generation had of moving into secure employment and ladders of promotion, I mean, all that's gone. And all the attachments like pensions have largely disappeared. Housing has become an almost impossible barrier for young people unless they have the bank of mum and dad. Education is more widely available, but there are costs. We'll, we'll go on to talk about that. So, yeah, there is a big gap, and it's reflected in crude economics. If you talk about the over-50s, on average, we're talking about having net worth of half a million because of property, whereas younger people have no net assets. They can't get into the market for it. It is reflected politically that older people have been voting more right-wing, more conservative, younger people more on the left. And it was very clear on the Brexit vote, under 25, 70% of them voted to remain, 80% of young women, incidentally, whereas with the over 65s, it was almost the opposite. With the interesting tweak that over 85s were Remainers because they'd remembered the war, but there was a big generation experience. But I don't accept that the boundaries are fixed because one of the things our surveys tell us that Of the people who are thinking of voting Lib Dem, they may not have committed themselves, but there's 25% of the voters say they certainly think about it. They're largely concentrated amongst young people. And my experience is completely contrary to the caricature of our position. I get a very, very warm reception on university campuses, big meetings, very good reception, young people open-minded. They like what we say about Europe. There are other issues which are less... um, easy to deal with but by and large I think that's where we should be focusing. And do they when you meet those students and and younger people at universities do they come to you with reservations do they tell you what their concerns are that might maybe stop them supporting the Lib Dems? The the Labour Party have put out this stuff about Lib Dems and tuition fees and and of course there is a history Uh, but I remind them that It was the Labour Party that introduced tuition fees, then increased them. We made promises which we shouldn't have made and broke them, and we've been punished for it politically. Uh, The Labour Party clearly haven't learnt the lesson because they then made promises last year about student debt, which they've had to abandon. And and I but I do put it honestly to young people that you know somehow if you want to maintain mass higher education, and it's already over forty percent giving everybody the chance to go into higher education if they want. It's very expensive. Somebody's got to pay for it. And it's not unreasonable to say 
to uh, people when they've graduated, not up front when they're students, but when they've graduated, you should make a contribution. And I think we probably need to rethink the way we do it, maybe more specifically like a tax than, than wrapped up as a debt, but the principle I don't think we, we can go back on. Do you think it's the issue, that single issue, that has really damaged the party most with younger voters? Or is there something else, I don't know, in the way we campaign or the way we reach out to people that needs to change? And I'll, I'll ask you first, but then I'll come and ask you, Elaine, the same thing. Well, it, it, did, it did damage, for sure. But it was, after all, seven years ago. And you know, m- most students were 10, 11, 12 at that point, And it, it isn't a live issue for them in quite the same way. A lot of young people were attracted by the Jeremy Corbyn message because it was idealistic or appeared to be. I think particularly on Europe, people believed that Labour were pro-Remain. They're clearly not, certainly not the leadership of the party. And they've been, they've been sorely misled. So I think, myself, there's everything to play for. Elaine? <laughs> so I think on tuition fees, I think in some parts of the party it's become a bit of a cop-out. It's very easy to say, oh, young people are still punishing us for something that happened seven years ago and therefore we don't need to have a deep and meaningful conversation about what it is we're actually getting wrong. There's a lot of concern around Brexit, but also things like, you know, I've accepted I won't have a state pension by the time I get to having to draw one because it's highly unlikely that system will still be there. And I think for younger generations, it is this increasing sense of, well, hang on a minute, older people, and particularly around Brexit, older people seem to be taking our opportunities away and we don't have any way to stop that. And with Corbyn and the Labour Party, Whilst with some people it is a, they love his message, there is also a lot of just wanting to stop the Tories. So someone that I know campaigned for Kate Hoey in Vauxhall, despite the fact that the person I know is avidly pro-Remain, but her mentality was, it's all about stopping the Conservatives and that's the key issue. So I think there are definitely ways that we can break through and talk more on people's level about the things that they care about rather than feeling like we have to apologise for tuition fees and things that we did before and thinking that we have to do that before we can have a conversation with someone. And you're based in Tower Hamlets. You do most of your campaigning there. And as I understand it, Tower Hamlets is um, pretty successful at attracting younger members. Could you tell me a bit more about you know, what you've done, what you've achieved and, and how you think you've done it? Sure. So we've gone from a 2015 general election, 130 members to around 700 now. So a huge increase in two and a half years. And we've been very good at getting people active um, by concentrating far more on getting people involved in digital and social media and having a very good events programme. And so rather than what it used to be when I joined the party, here is a bundle of leaflets, or actually my first event was, please come to this action day and sit at a table and bundle leaflets um, and then go and deliver them. Uh, We've we've tried to do far more, come and get to know people, have a conversation about something that you find interesting and then talking to people about, you know, what do you do for work and then trying to apply that to how we campaign. So someone came to our annual general meeting that I'd never seen before very quick conversation. Turns out he works in data analysis. I was like, oh, that will be very helpful. Um, So rather than kind of going, oh, I need you to knock on a door, it's finding out more about people and what they want to do. Um, And that means we've done other things as well, like we do lots of paid delivery rather than getting people to, to do it for us because there's a recognition that 
the younger people that are now in the party are people like me. So I'm self-employed and was previously a technology consultant. When you get home at nine o'clock at night and you've had a relatively long commute, you don't really want to go and attempt to break into a tower block in Tower Hamlets and to put some stuff through people's letterboxes. So we've recognised that and then tried to adjust and been quite successful in that, I think. So it's not so much that you've changed the profile of your membership, but that you're adjusting what you expect from them so more of them are active. Oh, well, I think it's the profile changed and it was a, okay, we have a different group of people involved now. Um, we tried to do things the way they'd been done before and all of the uh, the usual kind of institutional knowledge there is in the party found that it wasn't working and just went, you know, at that point in Tower Hamlets, we didn't have any councillors, hadn't won an election for a while. So I was very, well, we might as well just try anything um, because there isn't much to lose. And we've been, uh, yeah, we've been very good at doing that and drawing people in um, and thinking as well about the party is great in terms of what's your message for voters. We've worked quite hard in Tower Hamlets around, well, what's our message for our members? So being clear about the things we want to achieve, um, explaining to people who the opposition is in Tower Hamlets. So parliamentary in my seat, I'm up against Jim Fitzpatrick. He uh, abstained on the vote to have a second referendum. He voted in favour of triggering Article 50, despite the fact he had a 67% remain vote in the area. Um, so that's that's parliamentary enemy in Tower Hamlets. And, and then on the council, it's about how badly everything is run. We're constantly hit by corruption scandals. And yet... 48% of children in Tower Hamlets are still growing up in poverty and that's not acceptable and it's the kind of fight that Lib Dems should be like getting down and dirty and getting into because um, that's you know that's the reason I joined the party was to make a difference to people. You brought along with you Tara <laughs> who's one of your newest recruits. Yes. Um, I think you've only been in the party three months yeah, Tara. That's correct, yeah. and you're one of our younger members I say. Yeah. Um, can you tell me how how you came to join the party first of all? So yeah, I joined three months ago and to be honest, it was on the single issue of Brexit. I was formerly a Conservative for two years, but of course Brexit was the red line and I realised as soon as the referendum happened, I was leaning towards the Lib Dems, but I still needed a few months to really decide. And then I also read the 2017 manifesto, which I thought it was, it was brilliant, common sense policies. So I decided to become a member. Elaine really helped me quickly, really quickly get involved in the local party. Prior to that, to be honest, I wasn't too interested in getting involved in local politics because my local team in Tower Hamlets have been so fantastic in energising and really engaging um, online through Twitter, through Facebook. I've really become enthusiastic about working with them and for the party so much that I'm actually standing as a candidate in next year's local elections. It is thanks to my local team that um, I've been so engaged. So it was obviously a national message initially. It was the the Brexit referendum manifesto but really what's kept you excited and getting further into it has been the engagement locally absolutely. yeah absolutely and then so when you talk to your contemporaries i know you're at university studying exactly. your postgrad yes. are they interested in politics do they sway one way or the other is it something you discuss absolutely it's unavoidable to be honest as day-to-day conversations with my fellow students and there's a lot of support naturally for labor i mean the idealistic policies they're providing um which i think can't be implemented in reality. It's attractive on on the surface, but once you actually understand it and considering Brexit, I just think it's incompatible to implement those policies. What what you do is if you want to get them to be more open-minded is you find areas where you agree and it's usually Brexit. So I think if we tap into that 
and I, I'm already hearing a few skeptical voices, young skeptical voices about being a Labour member and supporting Labour, because they're coming to the realisation that Labour is not the party, it's not the party of Remain. If we tap into that and we actually speak to those people on the ground, to people that are open-minded and they're already questioning, I think we could really gain a lot of young votes. Now you're 22, so you've been able to vote for some time, but obviously there has been the recent groundswell in the campaign of votes at 16. Yes. Is that something that the people you're studying with are excited about? And Elaine, is that something that you hear much from younger people about? You hear a fair bit about it, actually. So there was someone who was, he still is on our campaign team. He turned 18, I think it was June the 12th this year. <laughs> so he missed out on voting in the referendum and missed out on voting in the general election. So for people like him, and I think a lot of people that were aged 17, 16 at the time of the referendum vote, massively feel like they missed out on an opportunity to have their say, particularly when they look up to Scotland and everyone who was their age there got to have their say on what was an incredibly monumental decision about whether or not Scotland became independent. So I think it's becoming more of an issue. And again, as we're campaigning to have a referendum on the final deal, I think it comes up then for people who are younger kind of going, okay, well, am I ever going to be able to have my say on this? Through engaging with um, younger students, you know, freshers at university, what they tell me is their lives are at stake. It's their future that is really in the hands of the government. They absolutely have a right to vote. And they are political. I think this argument mm. that, oh, 16, 17-year-olds, they're not into politics, it's, it's archaic. It's, 10 years ago, maybe that was true. Today, definitely not. If, if people actually get out there, speak to um, 16, 17-year-olds, they're very much interested in politics. Vince, what do you think? Is there a realistic chance that votes at 16 could happen? Yeah, well, it could happen and it should happen. And we, as a party, have campaigned for it for many years, actually. But as I understand it, we, the Labour Party, the Scottish Nationalists, are all in favour. It's only the Tories who are resisting it. And understandably, when you look at their demographic, (laughs) um, their members are, I think their average is older than me, which is saying something. And uh, their voter base is old and they resist it. I saw some figures recently about the average age of our new members, which, as Elaine was saying, is very young, actually. Mm. We're seriously competitive with young people, and we shouldn't be inhibited about fighting for them. And I get quite aggressive about it, and I made some statement in the Mail on Sunday a few months ago, I occasionally write for, that we're living through an era where the old have shafted the young. And that phrase cut through, and I've had hate mail ever since from uh, quite a lot of people who didn't like it. But you have to say that, that is true. The only way of rebalancing the representation is to make sure younger voters have a vote. I mean, I get older people getting quite angry with me and saying, you know, somehow I'm betraying my generation, which is nonsense. I mean, the brutal truth is that there are a lot of older people who vote who are no longer totally mentally focused, putting it politely. But that happens as you get older. So why should younger people, you know, 16, 17-year-olds who are absolutely on the ball, well-read in many cases, have strong views, why on earth should they be disenfranchised? And the traditional argument has been older people vote, younger people don't vote. Mm. And that has shaped a lot of policy and, and, and been used to explain why certain things haven't been tackled. Do you think that's something that can be changed or actually we're stuck for the time being? No, I don't think we are stuck. 
I mean, th there was differential age voting in the referendum. I'm not sure if every, if every age group had voted had the same turnout that it would have changed the result, but it would certainly have narrowed it very considerably. Um, but the last general election, there was a big turnout of young people, and I would hope that's the sign of something permanent, because, you know, although our voting system is very flawed, I mean, the large parts of the country where in many ways your vote doesn't count because of so-called safe seats... But I think if politics gets more volatile, which it may well be doing, your vote will count everywhere and it will matter that you turn out and use it. So then we come on to what policies do you think should be the first to change to reflect the interests of these younger voters more closely? Well, I think you've got to start with a general commitment to younger people. That's why, actually, I think that's why the votes at 16 is a good place to start, because it is saying that we, we believe in young people, they're an important part of the political community, they should be involved, we want to represent them. So I think you start with the broad approach. But in terms of specifics, of all the various interconnected issues, I think probably housing is the most serious, because unless, you know, you're inheriting wealth or getting support from your family, it is very difficult to pay affordable rent and virtually impossible to buy until you're in your mid to late 30s. In many parts of the country, London is most extreme, but, but throughout much of the South, Places like Cornwall, the Lake District, you know, parts of Yorkshire, you know, it's equally unaffordable. So I think really majoring on a combination of large-scale building using public and private sector, plus protecting people's tenancies, giving them a sort of basic rights as tenants. I think the, the combination of those two things is very important. So I would start with housing, though it's by no means the only issue. What about you, Elaine, and then I'll ask you, Tara. What did the issues that really come up beyond Brexit that you think you know, actually are the ones that need to be reshaped? I think there's a lot around how the economy is changing and how work is changing. We've accepted that you don't go into one company and you work for the rest of your life and that that's changed fundamentally. But now there's also the big change of far more people want to work for themselves. Changes have been made by the Conservatives where that's not as attractive as it might once once have been there's also things around people want a lot more flexible working people want to see far more commitment to diversity in organizations and I think that's becoming more of an issue for people but then we're also seeing far more regulation from the government and things that are making that harder and harder the lack of a decent broadband connection in London and we have that particularly in Tower Hamlets and uh, yeah not being able to just kind of travel around and then that obviously links back into Brexit as well about you know we've all enjoyed well I've definitely enjoyed being able to go and work wherever I wanted and being able to work for international companies and that's about to disappear. Tara I wonder what your thoughts are. I would say I'm definitely education as a university student I think the policy we have on tuition fees is very rational. I think um, a current system isn't sustainable, but at the same time, completely scrapping tuition fees is a it is not a realistic policy to have at this time. Of course, housing it's unavoidable. It's a genuine genuine worry for young people, and also I would I would say also providing opportunities outside of education. I think that's what the Lib Dems do really well through the coalition. We advocate for apprenticeships, mm. um, so we should absolutely encourage um, opportunities outside of education. And moving on from policy to campaigning, it seems a lot is made of 
the medium through which we campaign about the importance of being digital and and having a smart digital campaign about how successful momentum is on behalf of labor at you know getting memes out there that people want to share and making people laugh and really you know being part of their lives i know during the general election they were even on tinder so is it is it the medium through which we're campaigning that you think needs needs to reach people or is it actually the message I know certainly one recent survey suggested that while younger people liked the message on tuition fees from Jeremy Corbyn, they didn't actually believe he was going to be able to follow it through. It sounds a bit more like it's a, it's a sort of cry of pain or a cry for help than, than actually something based on what they really think someone's policy will do. Well, I think there are two things. There is messages and there's medium. And I think one of the lessons we've learned that getting intricate, clever policies actually doesn't do you an enormous amount of good. It's useful to think things through and to know if you were in government what you'd actually do. But I think one of the lessons Corbyn has taught us, and we should learn from other parties, is that values matter. It's quite a tricky one for us because we are a values-based party and we appeal to people on their ideals. But one of our main selling points is that we've had experience in government. The model I sometimes use is, do you want priests or do you want plumbers, right? Priests have have got the chastity and they keep themselves pure and, and, and have a perfect doctrine and plumbers are people who sort out the dirty pipes and the leaks and a healthy political party has got to have both actually. You've got to have your values, you've got to have your basic doctrines if you like. But we're also about people getting into local government and national government and making things better, not just standing on the sidelines and saying the system is awful. And I think if we can get that balance right, then we've got a winning combination. But there's a separate issue, of course, which is about the medium as opposed to the message. And I think we have been in the past rather old-fashioned. Things that worked in the 80s and 90s and stuffing vast quantities of paper through people's doors, it's, it's, there's diminishing returns. It worked in its context, but I think it's, it, there's so much trash and younger people often don't use that anyway. So one of the things I'm trying to do is to get people who will put in money into the party to help develop our social media competence. I'm, I'm not great on all this stuff, I have to say, but I am trying to learn to use uh, social media more efficiently. I want us to get up to the competence level of the Labour Party in doing that kind of stuff. Elaine, what's your experience been locally of engaging with people? You mentioned that you wanted to sort of step back from stuffing envelopes at the mm. very least. I think what the Labour Party and Corbyn did really well in the general election was, and actually before even when he was fighting to become leader, they set him up as the underdog. And that's always something that's quite interesting to get involved in. And then in the general election, it very quickly, when the Tory party went back to their old nasty ways, you know, it became a fight for your existence. And I grew up in the Midlands where, you know, that is how you're brought up. The Tory party are a threat to absolutely everything in your life and that you hold dear. So if there's an opportunity to give them a kicking, then then do that. And then with the medium, it wasn't that kind of digital did all of the persuasion, but digital made it easy for lots and lots of people to um, pass on Labour's message, to get involved and also to connect with people that felt the same way that they did. And I think those are things that we need to improve as a party. I think our message on Brexit for voters is good, but for members, we should be moving far more to we've probably got 12 months to really properly fight this thing and we need every single one of you 
out there doing stuff with us and making it a last ditch opportunity for people to get involved and then using the digital medium for members as well in tower hamlets we've been as tara said very good we have a facebook virtual hq but we also have a whatsapp group that all of our active people are in and there are constant conversations <laughs> about various things from um, brexit to what's going on locally to everything else and we've also found that pulls people into physically being active so we've had people come to events saying oh, i came along because i joined the virtual hq and then i felt safer coming to an event because i'd spoken to some people and i knew some faces and um, whereas when i joined it was you got an email about an event went to a stranger's house didn't know anyone there so like you know that's not the kind of thing that people really want to get involved in tara what was your experience since joining um, mine's been overly positive, but um, perhaps because I am a relatively new member, um, so I don't have that experience um, and knowledge of how the Lib Dems used to be. All I can say is before I became a Lib Dem, I did realise they weren't as active on social media. And it's so important because that is the way people gain information and it's how you connect and how you spread the message. Um, I am seeing, uh, personally, the Tower Hamlet digital team is fantastic. And so if we could mirror that throughout the country, I think we could be very effective in winning votes. So it seems like this calls for optimism. It feels like there's space for the Lib Dems to grow. Yes, I think so. All the surveys I've seen, a lot of young people are considering as they they haven't made a commitment. And at the moment, Labour has got the most high profile offer. But I think it can and it should change. I I mean, I'm optimistic for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think, first of all, we're on the right on the side of history on the big issue of the day and i've been active in politics a long time it's very rare that nations make a fundamental change of direction which is what brexit's all about and we're in a very clear distinct position which nobody can mistake they may not agree with it but it's absolutely clear and i think we'll be vindicated and i think a lot of support will come with that I think also a lot of people, even though they may be superficially attracted to the more strident politics that's coming from the far left, deep down probably don't like extreme polarisation of politics. We have seen in other countries like Canada and France that people do gravitate to an alternative which is kind of radical but also moderate. And if we can get those things fused, we've got a very large membership still growing. Uh, We've got, and one of the things that really enthuses me as I go around the country a lot, our local government base took quite a hammering in the coalition years, but it's coming back to life. We're beginning to start winning things. There's good morale amongst a lot of our troops. And I think a a strong sense that, you know, we're going forward and upwards rather than down. And I, I, I like all that. Just finally, as far as young people are concerned, I've been around, I think, five university campuses in the last few weeks and got really, really good reception everywhere. And also remembering that 60% of young people don't go to university. One of the interesting things I did in my two years of exile before I came back in June was I worked with the National Union of Students and they invited me to work with them because they saw me as a friend and ally on the future of further education, because most of their members are actually in FE, they're not in universities. And there is an enormous potential group of people whose interests have never been expressed politically, and I think we, we should be doing that. Thanks for listening to Liberated. I have an extra treat for you this episode, a belated New Year's gift, if you like. I'm sure many of you got this in your stocking over Christmas, so I promise no spoilers. 
but you may know that alongside his many non-fiction books, while he was out of Parliament, Vince Cable turned novelist too. He's written a political thriller set in Westminster and in India, and he agreed to read a couple of short excerpts for us. The stinking rivulet was part bathroom, part laundry, part sewer and part rubbish tip, servicing the needs of a city within a city. But for little Ravi, it was an aquatic adventure playground. Those not acquainted with the sights and smells of the basti would have grimaced at the tamary waste and turds and dead dogs of this slum. But he was endlessly absorbed by the stately progress downstream of his flotilla of boats made from twigs, cans and bottles on their way through Swampland to Mumbai Harbour and hence to the Indian Ocean. That morning his mother had risen early to be ahead of the queue, performing their bodily functions and washing at the stream. There was a healthy flow swollen by heavy overnight rain and Ravi's attention was caught by a bundle of clothes trapped her under a fallen tree brought down by the rainstorm. This time of year produced a rich haul of driftwood, cans and plastic bottles to augment his merchant navy. He saw the potential of fabric for his sailing ships and with the help of a stick he managed to free the clothes until they floated closer to his harbour a broken plastic frame that had so far escaped the attention of the boys scavenging for material to recycle. And as he pulled onto his catch, he realised it was bulkier than a bundle of clothes and belonged to a man. This wasn't his first corpse, but this one lacked hands and feet, and the gaping eyes carried, even in death, the look of terror. His scream had the early morning bathers rushing to examine his discovery. The link is to the British woman politician who is the leading character and who becomes involved in the Indian drama. And the chief whip's head of office told her to go immediately to the Prime Minister's parliamentary suite where he was waiting. It all happened very quickly. She was ushered into the gloomy set of rooms behind the speaker's chair by one of the young men in the outer office. The PM looked up from the papers on his desk but clearly didn't recognise her and thought she was a civil servant who'd come to brief him. The speaking note in front of him put him right. He gestured to her to sit down and she had a few seconds to take in the famous face in front of her, more lined than revealed on television or in Prime Minister's questions but otherwise undistinguished and unmemorable. Kate, thank you so much for making time to come and see me. You've made such an impact since you came into the house. Uh, the tea room, which he never visited, is singing your praises. Your Newsnight interview has become a legend. I've suggested that we use it as a masterclass for training wannabe MPs. How about it? She nodded appreciatively, feeling that although the PM was a notorious flatterer, and she was susceptible to flattery, that he was getting beyond parody. And an entrepreneur too. Too many bloody researchers, communications consultants and special advisers. Don't you agree? She agreed, but not too enthusiastically, since she recalled that he'd been all three in his time. I've given a lot of thought to this, and I've decided to fast-track you to Minister of State. Should suit you with your outstanding business background and deep knowledge of India at the Department of Trade. Priceless. One of our main challenges post-Brexit will be to land an ambitious trade agreement with other non-EU economies. And as you know, the negotiations we launched last year are coming to a climax. 
We're not doing much change out of the EU, so we absolutely must deliver on our promises to open up other markets to British exporters. India's top of our list, but it's proving very difficult. We need somebody who can unlock the vast potential. You're just the person. Kate desperately wanted to shrink these ludicrously inflated expectations, but she could see that he was in transmit-not-receive mode. She also noticed that he had a problem looking her in the eye and was gazing anywhere but. He seemed to be one of those men who struggled to engage with self-confident, attractive women, and then she remembered all those stories from years back about young men in Turkish baths and made a connection with the good-looking young men in the outer office. Stop it, Kate, she said to herself. This is the Prime Minister. And he was, as far as was publicly known, in a long unhappy, if childless, marriage. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do rate, review and share it wherever you listen to podcasts. It'll help other people find the show. We're also putting your questions to Vince, so please do check our Facebook page and look for posts on other Lib Dem sites. Next episode is the last of this series. We'll be asking how we cut through with a message that really resonates with voters. Let us know what you think. We're at Liberated Pod on Twitter and Liberated Podcast on Facebook. Thanks to Elaine Bagshaw and Tara Hussein for joining the conversation and to Mark Pack and Benjamin Leal for their invaluable support making this series. <laughs>